We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds for many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continue to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Brittany Eklund and I'm here with Dylan Cave and we're joined by our guest today, Dr. Maya Kalogiru. Maya is a born and raised Edmontonian nurse with a clinical background in emergency room nursing in addition to human health. Dr. Kalagiru is invested in planetary health and her research program relates to climate change, health and nursing practice. She's passionate about finding ways to help nurses and other healthcare professionals engage with the climate crisis and is working on developing nursing leadership in this Thank you so much for being with us here today. Um, it's great having you on the podcast. Um, we always like to start by learning a little bit more about our guests and what attracted our guests to the field that they're in. So if you want to tell us a little bit about why you chose to become a nurse and uh, why you decided to teach others to also become nurses. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Um, yeah, nursing. You know, I don't have a super inspirational story and, you know, I always felt that this was a calling to me. And I really actually, it's really important for me to tell students that because I think a lot of students, when I teach them, I think a lot of them also feel equally as lost. Um, But really when it came down to it, I knew that I really loved working with people. And I knew that, you know, the sciences that I, you know, that I was good at essentially was biology and chemistry. So, you know, kind of putting it all together, I'm like, I don't think I could ever do a desk job. Joke's on me, I'm doing a desk job. (laughs) But, you know, um, I always thought that uh, that's just not for me. You know, I really needed to be active, to do something. And um, again, working with people really was the focus. I really wanted to help people in some way. And and kind of this like vague, um, like not ambiguous term, like kind of making a difference. Um, Right. And so, you know, to me, nursing really filled a lot of those, um, you know, holes. And it was like a lot of uh, tick boxes being checked off. But um, yeah, again, like I said, I, I couldn't say that uh, I'm no Florence Nightingale. This was not a calling um, and, and that's okay. It didn't have of to course. be a calling, yeah. um, but it fit really well. And so I gave it a shot and, you know, got through, actually I went to school at McEwen and graduated from here in uh, 2012. Yes. And um, yeah, you know, went into nursing. I did my like final practicum in emergency. And so that's kind of where I funneled into after. And I worked uh, here in town at the Misericordia for several years. And, uh, you know, that was a wild ride. Uh, the emergency rooms, the wild, wild west of medicine, uh, <laughs> you know, but I, I do, um, I, I have a really, really big spot in my heart for for emergency medicine. But somewhere along that line, uh, you know, I was working and, you know, it was a different time back then. It, I can only imagine how it is now, but even back then it was hard work and I was finding that I was getting really burnt out. I felt that my compassion for people was quickly diminishing. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't like that in me and I'm like, you know, I need to do something different. I need to try something different. And so one thing that I really loved in my work is um, teaching. You know, I really love teaching students. I love teaching families and patients how to take care, uh, you know, and how to, you know, just kind of whatever, you know, they came in with, um, how do they stay healthy? Right. And that was really um, something that I kind of hung on to. I'm like, well, let's let's go back to school. Maybe I can be a nurse educator of some kind. So I went back. I got uh, actually went to the U of A and I went and did my master's. And I I think 
I, I don't know if this is just in nursing, but I think sometimes in nursing we can be a little bit scared of research. And I was like a little bit nervous about that. Uh, you <laughs> I know? think most programs at first are quite scared of, of diving into research. Yeah, it seems kind of scary and it seems really quant mind. You know, you're like, oh, statistics, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it's one of those things that um, I just really wasn't sure what to expect. But in my first year of my master's program, I really loved it. And I surprised myself by how much I actually really enjoyed the research aspect. Right. Um, and so I kind of told myself, look, if I want to keep doing this, uh, you know, if I'm like, what, what is the end point here? Like, why am I doing my master's? And I'm like, well, I want to teach. But now I also really like the research piece. <laughs> um, and so what I thought at that time, like, well, if I like all these things, why not keep going? And at the U of A, and this is not like an unusual process, but they do allow for, um, it's called like a bypass program. And yeah. yeah, and this, again, this is like very, like, this is not uncommon, but um, if you meet certain criteria, you can actually bypass the master's entirely and just go straight to the PhD. Oh, wow. So I was kind of at this crossroads. I'm like, okay, am I, am I doing this? Like, is this happening? Because at this point, if I'm doing this, I'm turning my back on bedside nursing pretty much forever, which is a choice. Um, and yeah, you know, I decided that I'm going to go this route. I, I didn't really feel like I could make a big difference at the bedside. Right. I really, you know, our, I think that the COVID pandemic has really shown us that our healthcare system is broken mm -hmm. and we are not really fixing people, quote unquote. You know, what we're doing is people are coming in, we slap a bandaid on them and then they leave and then they just come back again later. Right. And that was really troubling to me. And so I was hoping that, you know, if I really, again, kind of this vague, make a difference feeling in me, I kind of was like, well, Maybe I can do this from a different vantage point. You know, maybe it's not at the bedside for me, uh, yeah. you know, and so I ended up going into my PhD and I'm like, well, if I'm going to do my PhD. I better choose something that I really care about. And that was the planet. You know, um, I kind of always not I should say I always have been. But as I kind of got older, I really started getting concerned about climate change and um, kind of saw myself as an environmentalist. Right. Uh, I read Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything. That that really honestly changed the trajectory of my life. Um, I was like, this is a huge problem and we need to do something about <laughs> it. Yeah. And I need to be a part of that. Um, and so I was like, OK, I'm going to commit my professional life to this, but like also kind of still wearing my nursing hat and through a nursing lens. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you know, so I ended up doing my Ph.D. in the area and. Here I am. <laughs> Amazing. That was really long-winded. I'm sorry. No, but I, it answered two of our questions because <laughs> I was curious about the bypass because honestly, I mean, we've interviewed, what, 20 researchers? Oh, double. More, yeah. Um, at this point, and none of them have talked about bypassing a master's. So Yeah, I don't know if it's just a nursing thing, um, but I know that a lot of nursing programs are in Canada do offer that. I don't know if other programs do. There are pros and cons. That's a whole other discussion. <laughs> I know for, for my program specifically, if I was to go get my master's degree, they actually have um, a bypass for your bachelor's degree to your oh. master's degree. Interesting. What yeah. a dream. Yeah. You, the, <laughs> if you take, uh, all you have to do is take one year of their prerequisite um, and then you can go right into the master's program. Cool. Yeah. So I'm I think it's something like that then. Yeah. No, I mean, that's really interesting. So the long-winded explanation gave us a lot of insight and it leads right into our next question which is nursing and climate advocacy um you know these are healthcare, the environment 
big topics that affect people's lives every day. Like you cannot interact, you cannot not interact with them. So um, because this isn't really something that I've personally heard being talked about a lot, can you tell us about how nursing and climate advocacy interact and, and kind of, you know, how they maybe create that cycle or if there is a cycle? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I was saying before, I really love this question because when I tell people, oh yeah, nursing work and climate change, people give me like really kind of, you know, strange looks like, what do you mean? And, you know, I'll know that I have done my work when people stop asking that question. Um, but really to me, it's, it all comes down to health, right? And so, um, nursing work, nurse, the nursing mandate is to promote health in all domains, you know, whether that's in life or whether that's, um, you know, in the palliative dying process, you know, it's not like medicine. Medicine is about keeping people alive pretty much no matter what. But nursing is more about that qualitative piece about how do we live a good life, you know, and how do we die a good death and how do we promote health in all phases of life? Um, and that's like this really beautiful thing that I, you know, that um, I'm really, you know, I really feel is kind of anchoring this climate change work because people see climate change and they think, of course, tornadoes and extreme weather events, heat waves, things like that. What they don't always see, although I think that's changing now, is that climate change is a major health crisis. It is a huge health problem. You know, when there are heat waves, people are out there working. You know, people are um, on the streets because they're homeless. And what do you do about that? You know, they need health services a lot of the time. And so nurses need to be aware of what is happening and how the landscape of healthcare is changing for us. Um, people are coming into emergency rooms on smoky days because they have asthma and that gets, you know, that gets exasperated from the smoke. So, you know, for me, it's all about, you know, getting nurses to understand like, what is the problem? How do we as nurses deal with that Kind of from like, um, you know, a reactive perspective, like how do we like who are we going to be seeing in our care areas? Um, so, you know, what kind of patients are we going to be seeing? What kind of clients are we going to be working with? Um, but also, you know, from like an upstream perspective. So how do we as nurses advocate for change? Um, there's this report that came out, I think, sometime in I want to say it's 2019 that found that. In Canada, if like all of healthcare, uh, sorry, no, this is around around the world. If um, healthcare was its own country, it would emit 4.5 to 5 percent of all global emissions. Wow! Right. So there's like this real need here for healthcare professionals, not just nurses, but for us to be aware of our footprint and the things that we do, um, and how that impacts other people around the world. So. I don't know if I'm getting off track. No, here, no, that's really interesting. Um, the first thing that like it made me think of was, you know, here in Alberta, I think the heat waves NBC, like the heat waves have been a really eye opening thing um, for the elderly, for people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, they're very severe, dangerous events and people died like hundreds of people. Um, and that's not the only thing that causes a problem like, uh, in Pakistan when they had the floods. The flood water was a problem, but what was a bigger problem was the disease that happened 
when the water receded and was standing and breeding and like all of this stuff. So, you know, a heat wave here has those immediate consequences of heat stroke, but like what happens to chronic exposure to smoke if you have COPD or something like that. So that's really interesting. The second piece, the footprint of medical industry. Um, And again, the pandemic has showed us like how much garbage was created by face masks and they're clogging up the ocean and they're like doing all of this stuff. So, I mean, now that you're walking us through how these things are connected, I'm like, holy crap. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny because um, when I was connecting my research for my doctoral work, which we can get into later, but um, you know, at first people were like, again, nursing, climate change, what? And then as we were going through the questions, it's like, oh, they were making the connection themselves. Like I didn't actually say anything because I'm not there to tell them what to think, but they were starting to connect the dots. And, um, you know, you just have to spend just a little bit of time thinking about it. And um, just like as a little bit of a sidebar, I'll tell you kind of a, a cool story that was happening a couple of years ago is that um, an example of, you know, healthcare practitioners being like, oh, we should do something. Um when you go for surgery and you get put under, you are given some kind of um, anesthetic to, you know, put you under uh, and it's a gas. And some of those gases are really, really harmful greenhouse gases. Um, and they get shunted out of the operating room, um, you know, so it doesn't affect the people in the room, yeah. but then it affects, then it affects everyone in the, the planet, you know? Um, <laughs> oh and gosh. right. And so there was this initiative because there's a couple options that Um, surgeons have in terms of what anesthetic gas they use and they um, there was this initiative to kind of switch to a less harmful gas and they were saying that um, I have to pull this up I can't remember off the top of my head but it's like in one day of surgeries happening at the U of A um, you know using the old gas it was like going from like one like the northern side of Europe to like the southern side of Europe in a car you know, in a day. Yeah. So, you know, it's like it, it makes a difference. And these are like small changes that we can make that can actually make a difference. Yeah, so. that add up. Yeah. I totally get it. Um, so part of your doctoral research involves uh, Alberta nurses, per, um, sorry, perspectives on climate change and health. Um, we want to talk a little bit about that project and what um, what we learned from that? Yeah, sure. So um, it was a small study and uh, it was for my doctoral uh, thesis. And really, you know, I went around and interviewed some nurses specifically at the university hospital. And there was a couple things that came out of that. And unsurprising, the first thing that came out of it was that nurses didn't really feel like they had this connection to climate change. You know, they were working in a hospital specifically. So they felt that um Climate change is something that happens out there. Yeah, it's a closed bubble thing. You know, you this is just our day-to-day job. How can that affect? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think one of the interesting parts that came out is that I was interviewing people that actually also were like, yeah, in my personal life, I'm quote unquote a green person. <laughs> I have my own compost. I have my own garden. I try to, you know, reduce emissions and I eat like a plant rich diet, things like that. But then I come into work and all of that goes out the window. And that was really interesting to me. You know, like what happens at the hospital doors that you can't do this anymore? And a lot of it was, of course, processes. Um, You know, the hospital setting was not set up to support this work. Um, And so, you know, they 
I think that that was kind of this interesting piece where like, no, not a lot of nurses really felt like they could do anything about it. Um, and that there was this sort of personal professional divide. So personally they cared, but pr professionally they couldn't enact that at all. Well, I think from, from like a, from an outside perspective, it it's like hospitals have to make people better no matter what. And it seems like for the longest time, it's just like, okay, well, that means we got to put a little bit of a dent in the environment for a bit to make sure that you can live a little bit longer. And that's, I mean, it seems like nobody was really thinking about that. They were just like, let's do whatever we can to make these people healthy. And now we're starting to look at these things that are just like, you know what? We can still make people healthy and save the environment at the same time. So it's, I think that's really interesting. But like, you know, on the flip side of that, like in a hospital environment, in a health environment, like you need to have things be sterilized. You need to have them wrapped. You need to have things that are disposable and your gowns need washing all the time. Like that's so much energy expenditure going into sterilization, cleaning, laundry, you know, wrapping tools so that they're, they're sterile. So is so. it a necessary evil then? It's really hard to say. And that's one of those things that came out of my work. So OHNS, Op Occupational Health and Safety, it was like this overruling power over people, you know? Um, and, and that was one of the things that really held nurses back. They were just like, I can't be environmentally conscientious when I am starting an IV. The amount of packaging I use to just get one IV is absolutely absurd. Everything is single use. Something that also came out was that these single-use items are also like not very good quality. So they're using multiple of them because they want a set of tweezers, but they don't do the job. So they have to get another one. Oh, and my gosh. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's like that's really was super obvious to my participants. The level of waste was unacceptable. And so, you know, then you think, well, waste isn't exactly climate change because it's like the pollution, like, you know, the plastic pollution is not necessarily. But this actually... Where it does connect, it's like if I pull you back, what you were saying earlier was um, about the whole like, well, a little bit of, you know, we're doing a little bit of, you know, evil um, so that we can do good for people. Um, that's kind of where the concept of planetary health comes in. So um, the concept of planetary health is basically that, you know, we have depended on the planet for a really long time to promote human health around the world. And that has worked for us for the most part until now where it's really like not working anymore. And so really the problem that planetary health is trying to kind of like solve is how do we promote human health without it costing us our natural systems? Because right now we really depended on it to enjoy this high quality of life and health globally. But we're sort of coming to what's known as like a planetary boundary. Um, we, we can't sustain this level of progress anymore. And now we kind of have to rebalance the scales. Um, and so, you know, I think of the pandemic, like I'm not going to go and tell people that they can't wear masks because of the planet when potentially they could be getting this unknown illness that may or may not land them in hospital. You know, it's, it's difficult, but I think, um, you know, it, it's still a problem that we need to figure out. And Word. so, you know, and I, I hate this, this fallacy, this like natural fallacy where it's just like when we did it back in the day, like it was better. And that's like, you know, a lot of people died back in the yeah. day, you know? <laughs> um, and so like natural is natural isn't always better, but at the same time, it's like, 
you know, IVs didn't used to be plastic bags. They used to be jugs that were sterilized and reused and things like that. So there's this kind of question for me, can we bring back some of these practices? Are they in fact lower energy, um, like, you know, footprint inducing? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I definitely don't have the answer to that, but I think this is, these are important questions that we need to be asking as we move forward. A hundred percent. So, I mean, just kind of, you know, touching again on, on how you mentioned that the perspective was, um, first of all, that some nurses like had this degree of separation, um, from that, like what other kinds of things did you look at in this project and, and, you know, what kind of trends are there? Do nurses feel like they're experiencing climate change through things like heat stroke cases coming in? Like, yeah, that was a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I think that everyone, you know, they're like, yeah, when smoky days hit, we see a lot of airway problems, you know, and we see a lot of cardiac issues. Um, and so I think that they did know stuff like that, but they weren't necessarily connecting it to climate change, right? Which is, I think, fair. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of them wanted something better, but I don't think a lot of them had it in them to do anything about it. And, you know, this is actually, this is like really sad to me, but one uh, nurse that worked on the unit was like really an advocate for um, like, you know, sustainability and doing things like that. And they ended up bringing in uh, like recycling bins for patients and their families. Like there are recycling bins for staff, but they're kind of hidden away. And um, a lot of stuff doesn't just gets garbaged because like, again, you're a nurse, you're busy. You just like, you, you have your bundle of trash and you just throw it out. You're not going to go and sort it. So they're like, okay, well, we're going to go and put these recycling bins in place and we're going to, um, you know, hopefully help some of that. And then people like A, weren't using them properly, but also B, like no one collected the recycling. It didn't go anywhere. Yeah. So, you know, this is kind of like one of the conclusions that I came to is that like nurses need to be advocates for um, you know, climate change, climate adaptation and climate mitigation strategies in their workplaces, whether you're in hospital or not. But what is also needed is um, this top down approach. Like a lot of nurses really wanted a top down approach. They wanted leadership to say, look, this is what we're doing. These are our strategies. Like, you know, we are going to start um, sorting our waste. We are recycling. Here are products that you can use that are less harmful for the environment or, you know, whatever. But they wanted, they didn't want to, like nurses didn't feel like they had the capacity to do that themselves. And so the conclusion that I come to is that, yes, it needs to be a bottom up and a, like and a top down approach, but perhaps where nursing leadership is, um, you know, most needed is to advocate for like, you know, your healthcare leaders to actually start supporting climate action. You know, um, you can only do so much when you're on the front lines. And especially now, like all of our healthcare workers are traumatized from years yeah. of pandemic and, you know, being abused. <laughs> and that's not like we we can't ask them of this, too. Yeah. Like the Alberta health system right now is crumbling like paramedics are I mean the amount of code reds that we've had in you know Alberta is like eye-opening and shocking um you know is there an avenue towards having this included in something like unionization like where unions are advocating for a greener work environment like I guess what I'm trying to ask is 
okay, so how do nurses or how do the next generation of nurses that are in school right now go into the workplace and demand action? How does how do you turn these ideas into a concrete plan to make this happen in Alberta? Yeah, I don't know about unions. Of course, I would love to have uh, UNA involved. And, and it's not that they don't support these things. I, th- I think the, the unions are for the workers and that probably needs to stay that way because, you know, again, um, I, I think that our healthcare workers need people on their side right now. Um, but I think more than anything, for those who do feel passionate and do feel like they want to do something, again, there there are people out there who are just like, I can't just sit on my hands and wait for someone to do something. Um, and for those people, there's um, like lots of avenues for action. But I think the, more, the one that's coming to light more and more often is something called like a green team. And so hospitals, and again, I say hospitals because that's kind of where my work is in, but this could be in any workplace. Um, but hospitals, uh, you know, they will have this team that's often led by nurses um, and they can kind of go around and say, look, this is where we're noticing waste. This is where we're noticing nurses are grabbing fistfuls of supplies and not using them, bringing them into patient rooms and then throwing all of them out because they can't take them to another patient because now they're contaminated, you know, even though they haven't even been used. So it's like looking at processes and things like that um, and, and kind of being like, OK, how do we take waste and something that happens in the background and how do we bring it to the forefront of our thinking and our vision? And um, yeah, so green teams are starting to pop up and it's one of those things that like you don't see it in research and um, but it is happening like from a grassroots level. So I think that's really cool. And there was recently a, uh, a study done about kind of finding different green teams that were happening across Canada. So there's not a ton, a ton, but it is a growing movement. And I think um, that is like a really great way to make a difference in, you know, and, and put, you know, um, action behind all of these things. Um, but also, yeah, you know, like leading by example and changing your um, own personal habits. And again, you know, like advocating um, your governments and uh, your leadership um, for something better and something different. Like, I, I don't want to just put it all on individual action because yeah. it's not fair when it's not necessarily individual action that has like mainly contributed to these problems. And so much is out of our control. What we need is that the earth has its own union that's out there <laughs> busting asses. That's right. And there is no union. So we have to be that union, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, um, I don't know, I guess it's just, uh, peop- and again, it's, it's a hard ask, especially in today's time, but you know, if this is something that you're passionate about, if this is something that you're really interested in doing, um, you know, start talking to people. You would be surprised by how much of a change you can make if you just start knocking on doors and asking, you know, and being like, hey, I have this idea. Can we do this? And they'll be like, well, I don't know about that. Big, uh, but, you know, this is someone who may know. Yeah. And just start asking. Okay. Well, we're going to take a super short little break here and we'll be right back. Honestly, I almost lived off cookies for the first year of my degree. Working full-time, being a full-time student, meal planning was a pipe dream. I loved that I could go to the university convenience store and grab a coffee and a Bloom cookie. It literally saved my life some days. Um, And the great thing about that is they didn't feel hyper-processed, and they were still full of those delicious sugars that I needed to survive those three-hour afternoon lectures. Plus, it felt like a reward for just making it through the day. Bloom cookies are 100% vegan and nut-free, and they're made right here in Edmonton, meaning you're supporting local and reducing your carbon footprint. 
You can pick some up at the McEwen Convenience Store or the Bloom Cookie Storefront on 124th Street. So go get a cookie and then go get that bread. All right, welcome back. So what's next for this research? Um, any plans to expand the the research? How are you incorporating some of these things you've learned into the practice as a teacher, perhaps? Yeah, okay, so I'll start with the first half of that question of kind of what's next. And I am not necessarily expanding on this work um, from like a research perspective at the moment. I am, you know, I take a, I take a lot of these learnings and I do think about it kind of like from my teaching, like what do nurses need to know? Um, but I'll, I'll talk about that when I talk about the teaching piece. I think where I'll start is really kind of like, what am I doing next? And so my next study, it's funny, it's changed a little bit. So where it started is not where it is now, but that's research for you. Mm -hmm. Um, so where it started was, uh, we were hoping to basically do an environmental scan and talk to people across Canada and look at climate health indicators. So um, we know that climate change happens and it has these health effects, but we don't really map them like, you know, the climate change onto the health effects that well. And so there are indicators out there that we can use to be like, look, climate change is happening and it's impacting human health in these ways specifically. So we were hoping that, well, sorry, what we know is that also health is done differently in every province. Mm -hmm. That's just like part of it. So um, there is no cohesive in like um, environmental monitoring system, like climate health monitoring system, I should say. And so what we were wanting to do is that we would talk to people across um, Canada, see what climate health indicators they are actually measuring or perhaps what they think we should measure um, and try to build like this cohesive system and kind of say like, look, this is what's happening right now across Canada this is what needs to be happening and how do we actually have this like Canadian, um, you know, this Canada wide system for measuring how climate change is impacting human health. The good news is that's already happening. Okay. So there is um, this uh, national adaptation strategy taking place right now. And that is part of the work that's happening at that level. But uh, so, you know, the good news is that it's happening. The less good news for us was that it's happening. So we should not be we should not be doing it. So we decided that we would actually um, if that's happening kind of at the Canada level, we decided that we would still work, I guess, Canada wide, but look at it from the other perspective where we would pick an indicator and actually see how are people working with this indicator. So um, there are a list of indicators that I can't list off the top of my head, but they're all about um, extreme heat. And so we thought what would be great and might start this work already is, okay, we know that part of the climate health indicators that we want to measure, they're going to be about heat. Mm -hmm. So we want to talk to um, public health practitioners specifically across Canada and understand, you know, how are they potentially going to, if they're not already, um, how are they going to measure uh, the impact that extreme heat has on the people that they see? And also, you know, what do they need for that work to happen? Um, and finally, you know, we really want to focus on at-risk populations. So, you know, there was this extreme heat event in Edmonton just this summer, and this news art article came out that um, there were water stations and, you know, cooling stations for anyone. Um, and Edmonton really, actually, we should be proud. Like, we actually have quite a 
wonderful like um, like response to climate change or like we're trying anyway. We're actually the first city in Canada to couple our fiscal budget with a carbon budget. That is stuff that is happening in um, Europe, but Edmonton is the first one to attempt it in Canada. So yeah, like I said, we should be proud. But um, you know, what are other cities doing? How are they taking care of people who are at risk? And um, if they're not, what do they need for that to happen? So just really kind of honing in on um, how do we measure this particular indicator? Um, if we're not doing it, what do we need to do? And how do we support this work going forward? So I have a quick question um, just about like from the actual health health perspective with heat. Obviously, we see heat stroke, um, dehydration, things like that being um, very like obvious symptoms of climate change when it raises temperatures. But what are some of the long term, like if Alberta for the foreseeable future are going to continue to have these heat waves and these kind of drought conditions in the summer, like what are some of the long term implications of that? Like, you know, does it have any consequences beyond immediate? Yeah, I think that's such a big question. And it's not just about health, but of course, all of these things sort of intertwine. But, you know, um, more extreme heat also leads to potential for more fires. More fires lead to more smoky days. It's also very difficult to be a farmer right now um, because in Alberta, you know, Canada is so big that um, the climate change that we are seeing, some of it is extreme heat and, you know, and drought and some of it is flooding. Yeah. So you know, I am not a farmer, if you cannot tell. <laughs> but um, one thing I understand is that um, crops don't necessarily need good temperatures to survive, but they need consistent temperatures. Yeah. And that's what's happening with climate change is that we're getting these mega inconsistencies and it's very difficult to raise crops. Um, and so, you know, of course, that impacts mental health. Uh, extreme heat actually does impact how we metabolize certain drugs. Uh, including uh, some mental health medications. And so we may see uh, more challenges with that. Um, and of course, there's all this like eco-anxiety, right? Um, which is a huge thing for our youth. Uh, and, and not just youth, but especially them, because they're like, we didn't do any of this and now we have to deal with this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I think, I, I hope that I answered the question, but it is really far reaching, right? Because it's like people can't work when it's super hot. Well, or, or they have to work. And, and then, then it got hurt. you're miserable and you're getting hurt. And I mean, even with like when you can't go outside in the winter because it's so cold that you instantly like freeze and then you can't go outside in the summer because if you step outside, you light on fire from the sun. So it's kind of like, you know, you get trapped inside all year round. And when you're in Alberta or Edmonton, like we really need those kind of summer and spring months to be outside <laughs> it's our only chance it's a so, little, little break for uh from the extreme heats and yeah, or extreme so, temperatures no, i sorry. was just kind of curious because i think people like okay well we'll just put acs in buildings and we'll just put water cooling stations and then we're fine we can weather this for the rest of time yeah i and mean I, the ac yeah. is a huge problem right because they just you know t they basically just dump heat into the streets which makes everything hotter um, not to mention, of course, our electricity grid can only support so much. And that's something that we also, I think, saw this summer. Yeah. Uh, you know, people were saying, like, don't try to use less electricity between like this hour and this hour. Uh, you know, I mean, it's uh, it's a difficult problem. If our grid goes down like that, that's a big problem. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
well, thank you for answering. I know that's such a big question, um, but yeah, I just was trying to get a little bit more of a picture of like, I know there's longer term health consequences, so. For sure. And I don't know if we still want to go there, but I did not talk about the teaching piece. Yes, please. Okay. That's next. Yeah. So, you know, then if we come back, you know, again, kind of big, big detour, <laughs> that's how I roll. If you haven't noticed, um, there is this piece about kind of like, well, you know, how does this influence my teaching? And I think the really big piece for me is that, um, one thing that I learned is that nurses don't feel like they're equipped uh, and so whatever course I teach, I do integrate like planetary health into it. I try to integrate um, climate advocacy uh, into these things. I have found that students are very, very interested, you know, um, and, and I hate, you know, I don't want to always focus on doom and gloom. And that's like really difficult because it's so easy to go there. Um, but really focusing on like, what can we do and trying to inspire students? I'm like, look, you didn't ask for this, but you have to deal with this. Yeah, uh, you, you know, don't have a choice at some point. We all do, <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, you're the incoming nurses and people will listen to you and it may not feel like that right away, but we need you and we need your voices. So how do I empower you to feel, um, you know, in control? How do I empower you to feel like you know what you're talking about? Um, and really, you know, being that person who's going to knock on those doors and say, look, this isn't working for me. How are we going to fix this? Well, I'm very excited to see the changes that happen because, I mean, you're teaching nurses before they're in the field that advocating for the climate and advocating for themselves to be able to do things to reduce their waste and protect the environment. I mean, that's how you start it. I think it's a lot easier to convince, to teach people rather than try to convince them after the fact. So... That's the hope, you know, and teaching is such a big part of this, you know, and I, I'm part of this other group, um, Canadian Association of Nurses for the Environment, CANE. And so we do a lot of work on teaching and working with um, our, you know, uh, schools of nursing and how do we create curricula that support this type of work. And um, yeah, we the education piece is huge. Perfect. So... Now that we actually know what the project is, you've already given us a sneak peek. Um, can you tell us kind of where you are in the process and like maybe a timeline or or because you're just coming off mat leave. So I am technically still on mat leave until still July. Leave. I'm just doing it while on mat leave because I'm I'm the kind of person who's just like, <laughs> let's work between naps, guys. OK, perfect. So, yeah, do where, podcasts where... too, right? <laughs> exactly. Where is the where are we in the project and what are next steps? Yeah. So it is pretty early. We just did you know the the change in direction um so we just got approved by ethics and now um we're really at the beginning so now we have to find our public health practitioners who are willing to talk to us and um get you know get down and see what they're thinking and how they're feeling about these issues and trying to figure out um you know who to contact but um we have some connections uh with health canada and um another public health agency that i think will be able to support us so yeah, I, I'm looking forward to it. Like I said, really early days. Okay, perfect. Well, th th I mean, those are all the questions that I had. Amazing. Uh, I guess we <laughs> should we should say, though, if there's anything else that you want to talk about um, and that you wanted to put forth, um, now's the time. We'll leave the floor with you. Any calls to action, anything else like that that you want to send to our audience, it's all you. You know, I will say one thing, and that is I just hinted at it um, before, but, you know, this group, um, CANE, which is, again, the Canadian Association of Nurses for the Environment, 
you know, full disclosure, I am the president-elect, so I am deep in it. But, um, you know, if you're a nurse and even if you're not a nurse, uh, if you're a healthcare practitioner that is looking for uh, a home and you care about these things, look us up. Um, you know, you can Google our name and you'll find us and, you know, you will uh, you can join us. And we do try to have webinars, uh, educational webinars. And, you know, there are lots of um, it's it feels like random initiatives at the moment, but it's not, you know, it's like people come to us who need help, um, you know, trying to figure out again, like, how do I teach my students about these things? So we will support them in that type of work. Um, or people like, Hey, how do I set up a green team? It's like, we will help you with that work. So come join us. If you're interested, if you want to find other nurses who also care about the environment, if that sounds like it's you, please, we have a spot for all of you. Even if you don't live in Alberta, if you're listening to this and you're somewhere in Canada, it is a national organization and we would love to have you. Okay, perfect. Awesome. And I will put a link to that in the episode description. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you think this podcast can change the world, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted. When, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing are by Dylan Cave with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Our executive producer is Ray Bereed.